Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 27th, 2023. Long-term uh, viewers and listeners to the Keenon show know that we've spent a lot of time talking about the uh, very disturbing nexus of healthcare and inequality in America with all sorts of guests. Um, Dr. Robert Pearl is one of my go-to guys on on the dysfunctional nature of American healthcare. He used to run Kaiser Permanente in California, teaches at Stanford Medical School. He knows his way around the healthcare system, and he's profoundly unhappy with what he sees. Um, this came out particularly in COVID. Another distinguished American doctor, Alex Jahangir, um, who's based in Tennessee, uh, talked about the profound inequalities in American healthcare that resulted in the inegalitarian injustices um, of our healthcare catastrophe, more and more poor people dying, in other words. Uh, this was uh, compounded with a conversation we did with Stephen Thrasher um, on what he calls the health or perhaps the bad health of what he calls the viral underclass. Uh, Stephen Barushka, another medical activist, I guess, argues we need a Sputnik moment to reform uh, America's radically inegalitarian healthcare system. I'm not convinced we're going to be able to get that. Um, Sonali Kolkata, we talked to her a couple of weeks ago. Americans, she argues, need to simply rise up against what she calls bullshit healthcare that has resulted and compounded all the inequalities of American 21st century capitalism. It's even true in death. Uh, Anna DeForest, the doctor we talked about, suggested that even the rich and poor experience different deaths in America and different conceptions of death. Um, this disturbing conversation is only compounded with my guest today, Kathleen McLaughlin. She has a new book out, Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. And she's joining us from Portland today. Blood Money is out tomorrow. Uh, Kathleen, I'm sure you're familiar with some of those books and uh, arguments that we've had in previous uh, uh, previous shows on Keenon. How central do you think, uh, leaving aside the blood industry, which we're going to talk about, but how central is the medical system, the, 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 the medical ecosystem to everything that's wrong with America? I mean, I think you could argue it is our number one problem, right? There have been study after study over the years that have shown that medical debt is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States. The fact that we even have something called medical debt should horrify everyone, that you can go into debt trying to protect your health or, you know, I mean, have surgery or you get a major illness like cancer and need to treat it. You can actually go into debt over these things. So, I mean, I think it's central to every problem that we have, to be honest. Yeah, it's the, it's the nexus of money and the medical system. And 
and what it does to us and our relationships. Uh, and that's the core of your book. I mean, there, there could be no more, um, no more accurate description of the American system than the one you outline in Blood Money. It's about people who sell their blood for money, Kathleen. I didn't even know this industry really existed. Tell us about it. Well, the only reason that I know, um, or that I noticed, I should say, is that I have a chronic disease um, that causes me to rely on a medicine made from other people's blood plasma or parts of their plasma. And so the United States is one of a, a very small handful of countries in the world that allows companies to pay people for their plasma. So there are three things that you can get paid for in the US if you donate parts of your body, firm, eggs, and blood plasma. If you donate whole blood, you, you can't be compensated financially for that. If you donate plasma, you can be. And it's essentially just a loophole that has been exploited by a number of companies who turn this substance into incredibly expensive medications like the one that I depend upon. So I have been taking this drug for about 20 years off and on since I was diagnosed with this rare illness. And it's an infusion drug. So you have a lot of time sitting in a chair being very bored to think about things. And um, I've always just thought, where does this come from? And so I kind of started on this quest trying to figure out who are all these people who donate plasma? And why don't you hear more about it? Um, you know, you, you hear all these stories of people who donate blood, and we think of that as a very heroic act, right? If you donate blood, you tell people about it, you talk about it, whereas plasma is this more hidden kind of thing. And I've come to believe it's because it's compensated. So we have stigmatized it in a really strange way to believe it isn't the same kind of heroic um, donation as blood. So explain uh, to me and to most of the people who, who aren't doctors, uh, 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 Kathleen, what, what the difference is between plasma blood and just regular blood. So if you go to your local Red Cross and donate your blood, you're not donating plasma or is Plasma in all blood. I'm not entirely sure. Plasma, plasma is in all blood. It is essentially the protein component of blood. So if you remove the rest, the red blood cells, the platelets, the rest of the substance, you're left with plasma, which is just the liquid protein part of your blood. And the way that this is done, your whole blood is pulled out of your body and put into a centrifuge, which spins it into parts. And the plasma is collected separately. The remaining parts of your blood are then reinfused into your body. And the reason that is done is it's actually, um, it's more of a strain on your body to remove whole blood than it is plasma. And plasma regenerates pretty quickly. So if you have the, the rest of your blood parts reinfused and they only keep the plasma, you're just regenerating this protein fluid that's taken out. Uh, I guess, Kathleen, if you were a novelist and you were writing about this, uh, there would be a, a kind of a, a, a metaphorical sense uh, in, in the way in which plasma is, in the way you're presenting it, a kind of a purified uh, version of our blood. And of course, the process that you're describing in broader economic terms 
represents a, a, a purified version of American capitalism. Is that fair? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at it, it's almost too. It, we have, I think, in all cultures, not just American society or Western culture, we have an obsession with blood and especially this notion of using blood to treat illness or to look for the fountain of youth or to look for eternal life. Um, and the fact is, this, this is already happening, but in a really kind of unpleasant, icky way. So, you know, we have companies that are taking the blood of people who have economic instability for any number of different reasons or who just want to make a little bit extra money and then turning it into medications that are then infused to me i mean it's it is it's kind of like vampirism already exists right i was thinking of vampire, but of course um you know the the traditional literary representation of, of vampire is is it's the it's 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 the vampire sucking the blood of the innocent, but this is in an odd way the reverse. You you wrote a Daily Beast piece about this industry, the plasma industry, wanting to suck the blood of the poor. So the the uh, the, the relationship, the narrative is turned on its head. Um, it's people who are losing their blood. Uh, it's 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 the capitalist plasma companies that are are the vampires. Is that right? I think that is right. I mean, it's it's quite interesting to me though. And when I was researching this book, I looked back at the kind of history of literature around vampirism, around vampires, and also the history of blood transfusions. Because we, you know, before we figured out how to do it humans were very interested in the idea of moving blood from one person to another. That's always been something that's a fascination. What I found was very interesting, which is um, the early blood transfusion experiments in Europe several hundred years ago were almost all done um, at the expense of poor people in favor of the wealthy and powerful. So you would have, you know, a wealthy and powerful person who was ill and they were searching for the cure in blood and would do experiments on poor people. So the actual history of moving blood around actually does fit with this. I think this idea that poor people are there to treat wealthier people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. And I think that, in a lot of ways, this industry that has developed in the United States is not the problem per se, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of economic inequality and the massive amounts of inequality we have let fester in this country. So, right. so and many and, and, Yeah, and it's only compounding that inequality. I seem to remember, maybe you, you know this um, anecdote, this case where um peter Thiel and some of the more um some of the odder figures in silicon valley people who think they can live forever um em embraced the technology where they got blood transfusions does that r ring a bell for you they have never peter Thiel has never publicly confirmed that he did that or was invested well, he's never in public he's yet. never publicly confirmed anything uh, <laughs> right uh, uh, kathleen but that's no reason for us not to talk about it 
but him specifically. So what I can tell you, um, and there is a, a little chapter in Money about this, is there is a drive in Silicon Valley among people to figure out this blood science. So there have been a ton of clinical trials um, moving the blood of young mice into the bodies of older mice to try and restore their youth. There was also a startup, um, and this is part of the Peter Thiel thing, I think, the lore called ambrosia, uh, that the intent was to collect the blood plasma of younger people, and I forget the age range, but, you know, 18 to 25, and transfuse that plasma into older people as a tonic, basically, a youth tonic. And the guy that opened that company, in fact, started a bunch of clinics around the U.S. offering experimental plasma infusions. And he got shut down by the FDA over health and safety concerns. So the thing to know about this, there is, you know, there's obviously, we know there's an obsession in Silicon Valley with eternal youth and fitness and um, never ending life, I guess. And, you know, you see these stories about people like Peter Thiel who are doing extreme things to try and optimize their health and blood science has been part of that. However, there is no credible science that any of this works. There's a whole lot of research going on, but there isn't any credible science that shows, that indicates any of this does anything that they're, they're trying to prove. The one, you know, one of the few sort of niche uses for human blood plasma is exactly what I have, which is a rare illness. Um, but it certainly doesn't make me younger. It doesn't restore me to perfect health. It does work in my case. But these weird little experiments by extremely rich people haven't proven anything. Yeah, and, and, and it's no coincidence, I think, that what you call these extreme things of experimenting with one kind of blood transfusion or another are being financed and peddled by extremely rich, unnaturally rich people like Peter Thiel or Ray yeah. Kurzweil. So let's look at the other side. Who, who is selling your blood? I know most people would assume it's very poor people, homeless people, people desperate for money, drag addicts, for example. But actually, the truth is, 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 is a little more complicated than that, Kathleen. So perhaps you could tell it's, us yeah, the type sure. of people who are selling their blood, their so plasma. When, yeah, when I first started um, looking into this and wondering who was selling their plasma, I thought exactly that. Because that's the impression that we're left about this industry, that it's only the poorest of the poor who need to do this. The, the reality is there are a lot of middle-class people or people who would have been middle-class, let's say 30 years ago before wages went stagnant and our social safety net collapsed. Um, I mean, I talked to local news reporters who are doing this to buy groceries. I talked to any number of people with very normal jobs. The poorest of the poor are pretty often screened out of the system through safety regulations. So the plasma companies require that you have uh, residential address. So if you are unhoused, you can't donate plasma. They also pretty strictly screen for drug use um, because there are concerns about viral illnesses being spread through the plasma supply if someone is an IV drug user. So these are not the most desperate of Americans who are primarily doing this because the most desperate Americans are getting screened out. 
practically speaking, a lot of plasma centers are in places that you need a car to drive through because, or drive to because they tend to be kind of on the outskirts of cities. They're not usually right downtown. So one of right. the biggest, one of the biggest like uh, supplier groups, I guess you could call them as college students. College towns are huge hubs for plasma centers. And that's because for a lot of college students, it's easier to go in and sell plasma twice a week than it is to do a low paid minimum wage job. So if you're going to, you know, university and you don't want to work or can't work 30 hours a week and get your studies done, this is an option for a lot of people. I've met. Actually, if I was to pick a second area in America that represents everything that's gone wrong with um, whether you want to call it late stage capitalism or any 21st century capitalism, it's the education system. So it's, it's certainly not coincidental that uh, education and, and then this blood industry are connected. Um, Kathleen, you talk about middle class, but this is the former middle class. I mean, these are people who you talk about having a car, but these are often people who are living in their cars. It's a different world out there. It's a much more precarious one. And of course, we have this um, term now, precariat, to describe this class. I'm assuming that people who sell their blood or the majority of people tend to be in this new precariat, maybe driving an Uber car or working part-time jobs. I think that's right. I mean, I have definitely met people who work full-time who do it, but I would def- I would say that's right. I mean, you do have, I have met people who sell plasma to pay for vacations. And so that's why I think of it as kind of middle-class as well, because, you know, there are people who are living normal lives, working time, you know, earning a living, but they don't have anything extra. And that's the stage again of capitalism that we're in is you're just working to get by. You're not earning enough to actually have any fun. I mean, you talk to some college students and they'll tell you they do it for beer money. Like people want to have fun. And this is one way that people can. I mean, some people might be listening to this and saying, uh, there's just a a couple of left-wing people moaning on and on about the American (laughs) capitalism. They would say, well, if you want to sell your blood, it's free. You make money. The plasma industry benefits. Presumably this blood eventually goes to a good cause. So what? Yeah. Um, and I, I guess where I stand on this after having spoken with more than 100 people who sell plasma is I think, number one, they don't get paid enough. I think that it, I think that this qualifies as labor. And they what do they get paid? Money. What would you get for a nice jug of plasma these days? <laughs> <laughs> so all it completely depends on how often you go because the system is gamified to encourage people to go more often. If you go twice in a week, you get a higher payment on the second time. If you go eight times a month, you get a bonus on the eighth time. But the average, like a very raw average without the bonuses and extra payments is probably $40 per time. Um, and how and- long does it take? So you have to get there. Do you have to sit and for half it, an hour? It, how long does it take? The donation process itself takes about an hour, a little longer for some people. And that's not including the getting there, the check-in, you know, the leaving, everything else. So it's a it's a half a day process for most people, I would say. And you're getting $40. Which isn't a um, lot. Is, is there any medical downside? I mean, if you give blood 10 times a month, your plasma, it, it could it theoretically undermine your health? 
Um, there is one study that indicates long-term plasma donors have lower protein levels in their bodies, which to me seems like it could be a little bit dangerous. There are, from the people I interviewed, it's very anecdotal. People will talk about fatigue. Um, you get sick to your stomach sometimes. It's mostly this kind of fatigue, and it seems to affect some people and then not affect some people at all. So there's a real kind of mix between who feels okay and who doesn't. A lot of people do it once or twice and never do it again because they feel terrible afterwards. But I think there's a real dearth of credible independent scientific studies looking at the potential impact on people's bodies. Like what does this actually do to you in the long term? Um, there isn't any evidence that it's terrible for you in the long term. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence that a lot of people feel quite fatigued when they do it long term. But I mean, I just think that... Um, primarily we need to have a conversation about whether or not this is who we want to be as a society. Do we want uh, to be? Well, I've heard that before, Catherine. <laughs> we don't have the, I mean, I'm not sure we, anyone has ever had those kind of conversations. We're certainly no. not going to have them in America. How big is the industry, this, this blood money industry? It's massive. And this shocked me. When I first started working on this book, I thought it was going to be a couple hundred thousand people a year who do this. Um, the industry in 2021 collected more than 50 million units of plasma. You can kind of work backwards from that and estimate, let's say, half of people go, or frequent donors, half of people go once or twice a year. You're looking at millions of people selling their plasma in America. And I don't have an exact number for how many, but it's much bigger and what about the industry itself? I mean, do you have a dollar amount on, on, on approximately? Are we talking about a, a billion, a $10 billion industry? I mean, it's multi-billion dollars. And it's, it's a major export product for the U.S. So a lot of the plasma, because this practice is banned, paying people for plasma is banned in most countries. Um, and the fact that the U.S. has a large population, we collect a lot of plasma because we're paying people for it. We give them an incentive to donate. So it, this is a major export product for the United States. The, you know, the going thing that you will hear all the time about plasma is it's a bigger export value than soybeans for the United States. Human and uh, what kind of, I mean, would would uh, would we have heard, would most of our listeners have heard of the kinds of companies engaged in this? Are there any large medical companies with plasma divisions? Yeah, I mean, CSL Bearing is one of the largest biomedical companies in the world. It's in it's headquartered on, in Australia, and one of their primary um, businesses is plasma collection and making plasma drugs. So... The other way you would have seen these or heard of these companies is you could just see them around and you might not, if you've never been on the economic margins and you don't know what this practice is, you might not know what they are, but you'll see BioLife, Octofarm, Griffles is a big Spanish company, and then CSL is the other big one. So they are big. They are around. People may have seen them, but maybe just not exactly processed what they are because it doesn't impact your life directly. We've done some shows on, as all these shows have done, on, on the opioid crisis, also, of course, on the Sackler family's involvement. Are there the equivalents of Sacklers in the, in, in, in the plasma business, people who are, so to speak, recycling their blood money and 
donating it to museums or schools or hospitals and and profiting from their own virtue? That's a good question. Not that I've seen, no. I, what's fascinating to me in all of this is, so I had, um, you know, I've spent some time in Europe, partly while reporting this book and then doing some other work while I was doing this book. And when I tell people in European countries that America pays people for their plasma and there's this big system, they're horrified that we do this. But one of the biggest companies in the industry is a European company in Spanish. And so the, the blood plasma that people, a lot of people living in Europe get their medications from is actually coming from the United States, but they're horrified to know that we have this paid plasma system here. So it's, what's interesting to me is this is really a global trade. Yeah. It's and, a globalized system full of irony is that the Spanish company yeah. is paying to acquire plasma in the United States, which it then resells in Europe. I assume that plasma farming, if that's the right word, is illegal in Spain. Yeah, yep, yep, it is. And most people there wouldn't know about it. You know, it just wouldn't cross their radar because why would it? And I don't think that most people, most people don't get plasma drugs like myself. They don't understand that these things exist. And so it just doesn't enter their their headspace, I guess. Yeah, I bet you can That's what's interesting. Yeah, I bet you can't sell your your plasma in Denmark. Denmark's always the model. <laughs> what about the the China angle, Kathleen? Um, there's always a China angle. I know you really play this up in your narrative. The news today is apparently the the, the a lab leak was most likely caused the COVID pandemic, and that's in the New York Times, which is not conspiratorial or paranoid yeah. on these sorts of things. I, I know China figures quite centrally in your narrative. It does. So I lived in China for 15 years. Um, and that's the reason that it's central in my narrative is um, while I was living in China for 15 years, I required these infusions of the drug that had been made for plasma. Because China had a plasma debacle, I had to smuggle in my own drugs from the U.S. because they were safe. So China had tried to, back in the late 80s, early 90s, had attempted to create something called the plasma economy, where they were paying poor farmers in one particular province for their blood plasma that they were going to turn into expensive and necessary medications, and it could be this global thing. Right around that time, the AIDS crisis hit and HIV got into the plasma economy system and hundreds of thousands of people in this one province were infected with HIV and died from AIDS because there was no treatment at the time. So I knew about this when I lived in China. I spent a lot of time reporting on the aftermath of it. And what were you doing I in China? Why did you live in China for 15 years? <laughs> I went there as a reporter in uh, 2003, 2004, and it was right when the country was going from developing country to world's second largest economy. And I, I planned to stay for a year or two, and it was just too interesting to leave. So mm -hmm. I was working as a journalist the whole time I was there. Um, but I had thought, oh, the, you know, the plasma economy, it sounds so dystopian. Only China would do this. You know, what other country is going to attempt to do something like this? And then when I got back to the U.S., I realized that we had done it and nobody had really paid that much attention to it. Did the um, you, you mentioned 
the tragedy of plasma and HIV uh, in China. Did that happen in the U.S.? Presumably it, it must did. have in some yeah, way. Yeah, it did. Uh, it did. And particularly, I don't know if you remember, um, there were a lot of hemophiliacs in the U.S. And yeah, I remember. Who yeah. were infected. That was through blood plasma because their medication is made from plasma. So and a nearly identical thing happened in the U.S. Yeah, it was slightly different because we caught it sooner. Um, but yes, it did happen. So since then, what's great is thanks to advancements in science is we now know that you can kill HIV and other viruses by treating blood and plasma with heat. So there's almost no risk of that kind of transmission happening now. But it was definitely a global problem. And medications that were made in the U.S. from plasma were exported around the world and also had been contaminated with HIV. So, yeah, it was everywhere. Kathleen, what's your regulatory conclusions? I assume you, you have some in the book. I mean, clearly America... It's different from the rest of the world. It's allowed. Uh, banning it might be harder, but do you think that there needs to be a more aggressive regulatory regime around the plasma industry in the United States? I, I think we need to look at it and figure that out. It's a good, good question. Um, I, I would like to see more science. I'd like to see more studies on long-term health impacts. I'd like to see people get paid more. Um, the drugs that are made from plasma are incredibly expensive. The one that I take is $13,000 a dose. Now, it involves, you know, plasma donations from thousands of people. So it's not a direct one-to-one -one equation. But there's a big gap there between $40 per donation and $13 per dose. So I think that I just think we need to think a little more clearly about what we're asking people to give up and if they're getting compensated fairly for it. I don't know. I think that any time you have a situation where you are offering a financial incentive for a body part, which is essentially what this is, there's, go there's going to be something that feels a little bit like coercion, but it would be nice if it felt less coercive, if that makes sense. So you don't you don't think it should be banned. You simply think that we I mean, this conversation is is when people when I ask people on this show, well, what are we going to do? And they say we have to have a conversation. It always seems to me as mm -hmm. if they're actually saying I have no idea. Um, I kind of don't have any idea, but I do know that because we have we've stigmatized this practice and we stigmatize poverty in the U.S., those are the first steps to figuring out if this is OK. You know, there is a global demand for medicine made from blood plasma. Do we want to shut that down? I mean, as someone who uses these products, I don't want to shut it down. That's what do you think? I mean, I don't want to put words into my old friend, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Pearl or. Uh, Alex Jahinga, or there are many very responsible, honest, and smart doctors around who understand the sickness of the American medical system. What do you? What have you? I assume you you spoke to, you've spoken to a lot of doctors for the book too. What's the? Mm -hmm. Is there a consensus within the industry on, on this practice? Nope, there is not. There is not. I mean, I can tell you that you can't. If you donate plasma to a nonprofit organization like the Red Cross and you don't get paid for it, you're limited to doing it once a month. If you give plasma in it to a 
for-profit center that is selling that plasma, you can do it twice a week. So there's a massive gap between the two things. And I would think that the Red Cross is being protective of people's health to a fault. But we just don't know because there, there haven't been that many scientific studies, independent scientific studies to figure out what this might do to a person's body in the long run. I mean, the fact is we've made a decision that essential medicines come from human plasma. And we've made a decision at the same time that we're willing to pay people for it. So I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle, but I think we can figure out how to do it better and more fairly, if that makes sense. And finally, Kathleen, for people watching who are either selling their plasma or considering it, maybe some college students, what advice would you give? Whew, I would say um, if it makes you feel bad physically, stop doing it. Um, I would also say, you know, be careful. And I don't know. I, th I feel like they're, they're not the ones who need the advice. The ones who need the advice are people who should be protecting them. We, we should be talking about paying people more and restoring our safety net and our healthcare system and the cost of education. Those are all the things that have created this. Um, but primarily, I think because there is, I have talked to college students, for example, who don't feel great when they do it, but they continue doing it. And I, I would really advise people to think about that, not doing it. But I don't, like, I also uh, just don't think like, uh, Yeah, maybe like Uber drivers, um, they need to unionize and drive up wages. I mean, that's in all seriousness. Uh, I have if, a whole if, chapter in the book suggesting that. That's, that there was in 1923 in New York, there was a blood sellers union and they were part of the AFL. And they were short-lived because so when blood transfusions started, it was a one-to-one -one process. If someone needed a transfusion, they needed a live human on site at the hospital to give them blood. Um, and the blood sellers were in danger of losing some of their income. So they organized a union and joined the AFL. <laughs> now, the advent of, of blood banking and blood storage kind of obliterated the need for live blood donors. But... I mean, it's happened before, and why not have people organize again? Precariat of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your blood. <laughs> That's a great slogan. <laughs>